and good evening. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at UTS and my quietly awesome producer tonight is Evie McGuire. On tonight's show, we are going to talk about the kids in a cave, Trump on the road and over the edge, the ratings of Sky News and the sharing of printing facilities by Fairfax and News Limited, and time permitting, the end of Michael Ebid's reign at SBS. There's a lot to get through. There's a lot happening. But fortunately, helping me to dissect the fractured media world we're living in the studio, we have Alan Moyer cartoonist extraordinaire for the Sydney Morning Herald and do check out his website moya.com.au. Hello Alan. Hello there Peter. And also in the studio I have Remy Varga, breaking news reporter at The Australian, the future of Australian journalism, dare I say it. Hello Rem. Hello Peter, how are you? Very, very well and even better because on the line from Canberra I'm delighted to welcome Paul Karp, reporter at The Guardian, extraordinary political brain that he has. G'day Paul. Thanks for having us, thanks. Yeah, no worries, no worries. Let's start off in the dark. It was deemed to be the good news story we all needed. Twelve young footballers from the Wild Boars football team and their coach were rescued from the Thai cave. We don't need to fill in the details other than to say that the world was entranced by the rescue mission and the sad, sad death of a Navy, Thai Navy SEAL called Saman Kunan. Um, there was constant constant media coverage, breaking news updates, social media, hashtag Thai cave rescue went nuts across the planet. And it was all a wonderful story, but uh, a few people thought it was all a bit over the top, including Helen Razor, who's always a bit of an agent provocateur, but she wrote a column in Crikey saying it was uh, way over the top and what was all the fuss about. What do you think, Remy? Um, I think that news coverage responds to audience desire, and the reason why there was so much coverage of the 12 boys trapped in a cave in Thailand was because people wanted to read about it. Going so, yeah. to, and yeah. is that what you found in, uh, you know, with your analytics? It was going nuts? Yeah, it was going nuts. It was yeah. our top story for a week. Mm. Mm. And um, it's hard not to see why, right? Yeah, I mean, it's an entrancing story. Um, I think in, talking specifically about Razor's column, um, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that audiences and editors were so invested in the well-being and of these 12 boys. I, I think that's a positive thing that we are engaging in the humanity. I think in coverage of international events, we tend to only really care if there are Australians injured or involved. And the fact that we decided to adopt these 12 boys as a story that got so much prominence in our national media coverage is a good thing. Absolutely. And, and Paul, do you think it mattered that there was an, an Aussie horse in the race in the shape of some divers in the, uh, in the anaesthetist? He got a lot of post-rescue coverage. Oh, I think, I think that helped. And, you know, Malcolm Turnbull's already suggested that they're going to get honours. So that definitely helped kick the story along. But I, I think even without that, it would have had people very engaged and emotionally attached uh, to the, the boys in the cave. I think Helen Razor's point, though, was that media went the extra step in saying that, you know, th th this, this 
uh, you know, trials and tribulations, you know, redeems, you know, man at a very dark hour and that sort of thing. Yes, yes, and the, yes. The issue is, you know, the, the rescue is real, but that narrative that gets constructed around it, um, you know, is a construction. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And to you, Alan, I mean, the age, and you know, for instance, wax lyrical about the event saying it rekindled uh, sort of the collective human spirit. Yeah. I mean, is that, yeah. was that kind of too much? Um, look, I think the average uh, punter um, looking at media is like me. I don't look at all the media. People like Helen Razor are, are, is a monitor who looks over all the media, and it probably was overwhelming. But for the average person, they just wanted to keep up to the news. So mm-hmm. in my case, I turned to the um, Fairfax or the ABC, mm-hmm. you know, once an hour just to keep up with it. Mm-hmm. That's all. So I saw the ABC News and Fairfax and other people have been news limited or whatever. And it wasn't overwhelming. It, it just kept me up to date. And I, I think if people were interested, it was for the very best of reasons. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's it hard. It, story. It, it is hard to be too negative about it. Remy, if it had ended in tragedy, it would have been a whole different story. Um, yes, and I'm sure the editorials and the comment pieces that flowed around it would have been different. Um, I mean, I think it's important to understand that when editorials and hot takes and things are being written, they're usually being pumped out within an hour because everyone wants to write the hottest take as quickly as possible because that's what will be read, not necessarily the best one, the first one that's presented. Um, and I do I do think a lot of them were over the top and a bit gratuitous. Um, but again, it is nice publishing a story about something that's positive that people are interested in. It is hard to sell a good news story. Yeah, it's hard, yeah. and it's hard not to see that as a very, very good news uh, story. Slightly ironically, at the same time, there's a suicide bomb in Pakistan where mm. 120 people were killed, yeah. and that was like white noise in the background. Was, people, was, we didn't want to know about it. It was lead brief, wasn't it? Yeah. There, there you go. You're listening to The Fourth Estate, where journalists talk about journalism. My name is Peter Frey, and joining me this week are uh, Remy Varga from The Australian, uh, Alan Moyer from the Sydney Morning Herald and moyer.com.au. I'm going to get that right by the end of the show. And Paul Karp from The Guardian. Welcome, one and all. Let's talk about the man of the week, even by his own exacting standards. It's been a hell of a week for Donald Trump and the journos covering him. He's attacked uh, America's friends in Europe. He's insulted the Queen of England and her Prime Minister. He's backed uh, Vladimir Putin over his own his own U.S. intelligence agencies. And then when attacked by conservatives and liberals alike when he got back to the U.S., he's done this incredible backflip, claimed he misspoke, and, of course, blamed the news media for spreading fake news. I'm not sure whether to laugh or cry, but like it or not... Trump has become the assignment editor for the world's news media, as the editor-in-chief of Columbia Journalism Review, Carl Pope, remarked. Is there an alternative to all this? What do you think, Remy? Is, is Trump a gift for journalism, or is journalism a gift for Trump? Gift is maybe not the word I would use. He's definitely fodder. Um, maybe... He's a gift, he gift to cartoonists. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's, he's the greatest gift to cartoonists. Yeah, so we'll get to that in a minute. Pads out the paper, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, I guess the point that Carl Pope is making, and we'll come in here on this one too, Paul, is, you know, this guy really is setting the agenda such that, and I, I, there was a really interesting piece in Bloomberg over the weekend by a guy called Jonathan Bernstein, who made the point that there are so many issues swirling around Trump that the media is kind of moving with these issues 
uh, and not really spending sufficient time on investigating some of the scandals that which actually might bring him undone, right? Yes, mm. yes. If you were measuring just by clicks, you'd say he was a boon for the media. But if you were if you were measuring, uh, are journalists in control of what they cover on a day to day basis? Um, the the kind of chaos that he's able to create just with a two a.m. Uh, a tweet or a change of position, um, that really dictates uh, where people look uh, and acclimatises us to that sense of crisis and maybe crowds out time for, for other stories. So it is, it is a problem, him controlling the agenda. Yeah, there is that. And, Remy, I mean, the, the, what, what Bernstein was talking about was a story that pr- probably made the front page of a few uh, you know, websites for about a day, which was the scandal around both the Trump University and the Trump Foundation. Now, I think that, that has disappeared, thanks to, in part, because Trump and the media circus that follows him have gone off to Europe and, and, and to Russia and had this re, these remarkable, remarkable events. So do we need to pause, I suppose, and and get off the caravan and and sort of dig deeper? Yeah, I mean, I think that we definitely should. Um, I think the question is, is that possible in the current media environment? Um, and I'm and sadly I'm not sure that it is. Yes, no. Well, you may well be right. What do you What do you think, Alan? I mean, you, you're right. He's a gift, a gift to your craft, yes, absolute yes. gift to your craft. He has become expert at throwing red herrings, you know, in the middle of the night um, for the media next day, and a lot of the media are chasing it instead of, as you say, you know, stepping back and uh, uh, taking. Um, um, yeah, looking at it in a bit more uh, perspective. But, um, yeah, for a cartoonist, it's, it's obviously makes life very easy. He, you know, his philosophy is, you know, just because I say uh, what I mean, it doesn't mean I mean what I say. Yes. And, uh, yeah, we've never seen him quite so nakedly doing that, right? No, that's right. But it's right out of Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, it really. is. Totally. Yeah. Uh, my point to you, though, is if, you know, you ever going to run out of something to do on Trump? Because it, no, no, you're no, never going to run out. No, no we're going to run out with a new idea to do with Trump. No, he, you know, the, the ideas are sort of lining up you know, <laughs> just for all cartoonists. He's just, yeah, it's an yeah. aunt Sally. You just knock down the one you want. Uh, I think po- the trick is to determine the difference between the consequential and the inconsequential in his out, outrageous behaviour. And I think the most recent trip is an example where media following along and reporting what he does and says. Makes, is absolutely the right call because in this case it deals with you know the future of U.S. alliances and whether he's too close to Russia. So very consequential does need to still be covered. Yeah. Well, it just stick with you for a sec, Paul, because up until that Russia uh, post-summit uh, press conference, there was sort of a bit of a, te- a sort of feeling in the media and some commentators anyway pointing out that Trump's even though he's in, you know crazy crazy brave or brave crazy whatever he is or totally unorthodox. That this approach of his might be getting becoming a bit effective in terms of policy sense. So Peter Credlin, now maybe it's not a great surprise, but Peter Credlin used a piece in the Daily Telegraph to point out that Trump, what Trump was saying about the European uh, spending on military was right, and and that the world is ju- is justifiably worried about the the tra- China U.S. trade imbalance. So, is there a point in this? I, I mean, is is a kind of all this madness? Are we missing the point that Trump is actually doing good stuff? Um, I, I think that Peter Credlin uh, is, is right that uh, what he does should be separated from what he says, but uh, I, I think she just gave a, a very uh, over-optimistic assessment of, of how effective his presidency has been 
um, in terms of his actions. And if you look at things like the talks with Kim, Kim Jong-un, I mean, uh, the, even looking at what that, what that achieved, I, I think it's hard to say, uh, you know, that, that he's made the world safer. I think it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of bluster, a lot of promise, um, and that he, his actions reflect that he likes um, showmanship and prefers to to be able to put on a show than, than achieve outcomes as well. Yeah, certainly putting on a great show. One one interesting thing about the news media's response to Trump is how various news media reacting to him and doing things that you wouldn't normally expect. For example, the NYT, I noticed today, ran his speech in Helsinki and put in blue or orange uh, used different color types to say that this statement was untrue, that this statement was questionable. So different colors of basically helping the uh, audience sort of understand, unpack it. What do you think of that idea? I mean, that we've never seen that before. It's an excellent idea. I, I think we should do it with more politicians. I think we should do it with more of these um, grandstanding showmans. I think we should do it with everyone who's an outright media personality. Um, because, I mean... The media environment is cluttered and um, it's very hard to be able to sit down with an article and go through things that are correct or false. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that in the Oz. In, I, I will try my best. Yeah, I make do. no promises. Please do. What do you think of that idea, Paul? Uh, I think uh, with Trump, I think the media... Um, has fallen into the trap of thinking, you know, oh, if we tally, uh, you know, 59 errors in, in this speech or whatever, that this somehow adds up to something. I, I think the people um, who care that Trump doesn't tell the truth have registered that he doesn't tell the truth. And the issue now is how to tell stories in a way that it gets through um, to his audience, who I think, you know, care more about whether he appeals to their worldview and, and confirms their worldview and appeals to their emotions rather well, yeah, than no, can we tally the, the, the factual errors. Yeah, so like good reporting will always do that. Well, indeed. Although, you know, I think the digital universe gives us new ways of doing that. Just fin- finishing on Trump, Alan, um, one of the interesting responses of newspapers in, in uh, Finland was the local Helsinki paper, Helsinki Sanomat, excuse my Finnish to any Finnish listeners, took a page out and, and took out 300 billboards around the city some in Russians, us Russian, others in English, highlighting the, the Putin and uh, Trump's uh, turbulent relations with the media. One of the billboards said, um, Mr. President, welcome to the land of the free press. Um, and well, another said, Trump calls media the enemy of the people. And another said, Putin shuts down Russia's largest news agency. It's a very innovative way again, and also a very visual way. What do you think of that? Yes. Uh, well, it's a great example of the freedom of the press, I suppose. Yes, yeah, certainly uh, it was. Yeah, I think one of the problems with um, Trump or the coverage of Trump is that uh, we've become so uh, sceptical, cynical at first, then sceptical about what he's saying. But it's it's repeated so much that you become immune to it. Mm. And so I think that's one of the reasons that the news media seems to be going soft on Trump. It's not not really. It is just... um, There's just so much of it. So much of it, and you become immune as a as a reader. Uh, uh, you become immune to it. Yeah. You, you, how do you think the broadly speaking? How do you think the do you think the news media, in terms of balance on Trump, is getting it right, Remy? I think that the news media is exhausted by Trump. I I think that they are burnt out. Um, not only just because there's so much happening all the time, but also just because they have uncovered good stories about Trump, and it has had very little consequence, and so it does kind of seem like even with solid reporting 
he's immune to it. And I think that does go back to what Paul mentioned earlier, um, that because his audience or the people that support him are supporting him because he validates their worldview as yes. opposed to the kinds of playing, facts. Playing to the base. Playing, playing to the base. Playing um, to the base. That yeah. said, I, I, I think um, the press conference at the Helsinki summit with Putin has invigorated the mm. media against him. I, the Australian, um, which I think has probably taken... It's, I mean, they would say balanced and other people would say softer approach to Trump previously went hard on him today mm. on our front page. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, the Paul Kelly's piece today was uh, was extraordinary. I mean, yeah. He called him a fraud, I think. Yeah. <laughs> although, although Greg Sheridan came in and sort of vaguely defended him. But the, uh, mm. I think uh, within America too, um, people forget that a very large following um, is just not interested in international events. They yeah. worry about what's happening domestically. That's the same for any party. Very large percentage, too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and we should always be mindful of that on the Fourth Estate, that uh, we are journalists talking about journalism, mm. and we live in the journalist world, which is a lovely place to live, but possibly mm. it's not the real world. Mm. But, um, talking about the real world, and maybe this is the real world, um, Sky News. Now, Sky News, since the beginning of this year, has got a bit more pugnacious, a bit more punchy, and it seems to be working. Uh, this week's Australian media section reported that uh, the network has received a 9% bump in the average audience during the first half of the ratings year, taking viewership to more than one million Australians every week. That's according to the Oztam data. And, of course, uh, the Oz, uh, the Sky and the Oz, uh, just to spare your blushes, Remy, share much in common, including ownership and a heap of cross-promotion of journalists. But it's interesting that this formula of being pugnacious, strong opinion programs, breaking news coverage of politics and national affairs, uh, much like, dare I say it, Fox News. It seems to be working. Paul, what do you make of, of Sky's success, apparent success? Well, I would I would say that Sky News is a two-headed beast. Uh, in the day, you have um, incredibly uh, seasoned, well-respected um, journalists and news anchors like David Spears um, conducting political interviews, and you know it's a Walkley award-winning live news team. Uh, and in the night, uh, it's completely different beast. It's um, you know got a lot of the talking heads of the the right-wing commentariat uh, like Andrew Bolt, Peter Credlin, and Paul Murray. Um, and I, I, I don't think it's clear um, just because uh, their ratings have increased somewhat, um, whether it's the right-wing commentators and the, the punchier um, Fox News style that's winning viewers or whether it's the 24-hour news coverage. Um, and any growth is coming off such a low base on a, on a cable news um, station with, with lower audience figures historically. So um, I don't think this indicates we're all Fox News lovers, but it is a great... A great news station for, for breaking news in the day. So I'm taking it from you that the Guardian office in Canberra has the Sky News on till what? That six o'clock, and then you turn it off. What is what? Oh, no, we, we we watch both because you get the you get the political interviews that are maybe hard in the middle of the day and softer. Uh, Right-wing commentator interviews right-wing uh, politicians. And is there a is there a left-wing version of Sky News? And if not, uh, if not, where, should there be one? Uh, well, there's, there's MSNBC in the in the US, but I, I I don't think we have enough I don't think we have enough channels to uh, to give give the good lefties a go. Oh, well, I'm sure the Guardian can buy itself a channel. I so thought the ABC did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was trying to get to that, but you know, no one bit. Uh, what do you think? Uh, and this is interesting, though. The Sky News uh, Live sits at 0.5 percent. 
compared with the ABC News, uh, which has about 0.9. So there's not a lot of difference there. Are we seeing our media landscape becoming a bit more like it is in the US, more polarized, more opinionated, less concerned with, say, those dull things called facts? Yeah, yeah I, I think it's too early to make that sort of uh, summary, but uh, I just think it's good that more people are listening or reading. In any case, any figures that are going up is good news at the moment. Well, you mean any audience any, is a good any, audience? Any audience is a good audience. Well, any audience yep. is a good audience. You, yep. You'd agree with that, Rem, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I do think it is becoming um, punchier and... You know, more opinionated, but the the programs that are on at night, I, I don't think they are pretending to be anything other than that. I don't think that they're trying to present themselves. I mean, as um, a balanced news panel, I mean, no one would say that Andrew Bolt doesn't have opinions. <laughs> right. Well, he'd be out of a job no, if he suddenly lost them. Like everyone's very conscious of, of Peter Credlin's background. Yes, um, yes, yes. But I, I do think that. Um, and again, because uh, the news pace is so frantic and there's all of these stories and they're, you know, they're pouring from different kinds of places, um, I do think at the end of the day people are just tired and it's much easier to turn on the TV and mm. have it broken down for you in a really clear way. Yeah, and if you're going to have news broken down for you in a really clear way, it's... Right. going to come in the form yeah. of an opinion. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and yeah. I, I think especially um, when I was last in the States, I was really conscious of how much news there really is and how um, kind of glamorous it is um, and it's overwhelming. And I, I think that's kind of the media environment that these shows really take off in. Well, it reminds, it, it reminds me a bit of uh, apparently one time Walter Cronkite, the US broadcaster, came to Australia and said uh, the problem with Australia, there was too many journalists and not enough news stories. Mm. I don't know whether he actually said that. Can someone fact check me on that? <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Fourth Estate, where journalists talk about journalism. My name is Peter Frey, and twiddling the buttons today is Evie McGuire, and she's doing twiddling as we speak. Uh, the most important people here today are Alan Moyer from the Sydney Morning Herald and moyer.com.au, Remy Varga from The Australian, and Paul Cart from The Guardian. Thank you one and all for being here. A quick item that's uh, something that's hot off the press, or hot-ish off the press, it's actually off the press. It's about uh, Fairfax and News Limited have announced that they are going to start sharing some print facilities in New South Wales and Queensland. The end result of that sharing will be the loss of about 120 uh, full-time and part-time jobs at Fairfax as it closes plants in New South Wales and Queensland, and the move will save Fairfax about $15 million. It's actually not clear right now how much it will save news, but I'm sure they wouldn't be doing it for fun. So this has been a long time coming. And I know from my own time as publisher uh, of a publisher at the City Morning Herald, um, it got very close a couple of times in the past. And the last time it got close, uh, someone um, told Rupert Murdoch about it. And he said, will that help? He asked, would it help Fairfax? And when someone said yes, he said, well, bugger it, it the deal's off. <laughs> Apparently, uh, Rupert is feeling a bit more um, inclined to doing a deal with Fairfax right now. So what do we got here? We've got another example of the inevitable cost cutting um, as the industry moves away from print and struggles to reduce costs overall. Is that what we're seeing, Alan? Just I think so, yes. They're a long way from amalgamating newsrooms yet, but all the other... A distribution will be another one they'll share, I think, at some stage. Yes, well, there's a bit of sharing of trucks, but, yeah, yeah the yeah. full-on full, full on distribution. Paul, yeah. I mean, are we surprised by this? No, I think uh, sharing costs such as printing presses makes a lot of sense. Uh, 
I'd be more worried uh, about Fairfax continues to, um, you know, publish seven days a week or whether it goes to, you know, three weekday editions instead of five. That, that sort of thing would signal a bigger decline uh, to me than just consolidating printing presses. That just seems to make financial sense. So why do you like the printing, printed products so much? I mean, you, uh, don't, you don't see a print. You don't get your hands covered in ink. Well, sorry, the, a Guardian <laughs> person doesn't necessarily because you don't have a printed product in this country. Why, do you still like print? Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, well, I, I read it on the weekend, and I, I think there would be uh, certain uh, customers uh, and, and readers of news that um, would be so used to the print product uh, and that they wouldn't want to give up on uh, on that audience if they didn't have to. And also the... Um, the, the permanence of that format, I think, is what is what gives the, the Metro Dailies uh, and the national newspapers uh, more impact in, in the news cycle. Uh, you can you can point to you know that morning and say, oh, you know, this is the story that they have judged to be the most important, yes. and that's something I think you know radio producers and others um, pick up on. Uh, a bit better than just a news website. These these mergers, which, I, as I say, has been, been, been talked about for about eight years or more, you know, has been a long time coming. It doesn't necessarily signal that Fairfax is getting out of print. Right. I'd like to be a, a fly on the wall uh, at some of these presses. You know, who's going to go first? Oh, you yeah. know? And, uh, you know, do you allow the other side to see your front page before well, you... Well, that's right. <laughs> and that's right. I mean, in the UK, they do something very similar, right? Yeah. The, the presses are all, apart from Wapping, actually, interestingly. Yeah. Um, uh, what do you think, Remy? Well, I mean, I, I... You're a digital native. Do you care? I do, actually. I mean, um, one of the things I do like about working at The Australian is seeing my name in print and the fact that I might not be able to see my name in print in 15 years because there'll be no print. The idea of News Corp and Fairfax collaborating is completely wild to me. Um, <laughs> and I am I am keen to see how it goes down. My deepest sympathies to the 120 people or so that, lost, that will lose their jobs. Um, that's really sad and I hope there is some kind of industry they can go into afterwards. Um, but if this means, if this, if it probably won't be printing, but I mean, if this is the, if this helps the survival of print, then I think it's a good thing. If this helps print news media continue for longer, then I think it's a good thing. Yes. And it probably helps uh, Um, Greg Hyber's bonus. Yeah, Mm. probably. Um, and also, if this means that they stop shedding journalists, I, I think this is a good thing. <laughs> Printers before journalists. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, I'm being, I'm being mean. Let's move on to, I think, probably a broadly happy story, or someone who's certainly leaving at his own time of his own choosing, and that is, that person is the managing director of SBS, Michael E. Bid, who has announced, uh, somewhat unexpectedly, but announced after about seven years that he's moving uh, out of the role in October. Um, not, not really sure why he's going now. Uh, interesting to look at the SBS under his le- leadership. It's, it has gone through quite a lot of changes in this time. Um, he's launched On, de- on Demand, uh, NITV Free to Air. He's got the Food Network. He's stuck an exclusive content deal with Vice. Um, they got the wonderful World Cup, which some, uh, most of us would have been watching recently, and the Tour de France, which we can still watch right now, and the English Premier League and the A-League, and not to, let's not forget the Handmaid's Tale. So let's start with you, Remy. I know, are you an SBS watcher, and do you think they, they've, uh, you know, under Abid, uh, he's done a good job? 
Um, I actually watch no broadcasts at yeah, all. No broadcasts at all. At all. Um, unless I have to watch it for work. Um, so maybe I'm not the best person to talk about this, but I definitely think that SBS has become a lot more interesting in the last few years and it's definitely spoken about more and it's caused more waves and it, it, it's going forward and it, it's more experimental. And I, I think... Yeah. Yeah. Possibly a good time to leave. What do you think, Alan? Probably, yeah. I, I thought it was remarkable the way SBS was able to take over the World Cup seamlessly. Mm. If that was um, mm. his doing, you know, good on him, you know. It was, um, that was remarkable. But, uh, you know, how would we know about, if it went for uh, SBS, uh, how would we know about the latest labour riots in Kazakhstan? You know, for instance, nobody else <laughs> reports on this stuff. And we but do, we I, do need to know about that. That's right. I'm an avid uh, SBS watcher for news and mm-hmm. then switch over to the ABC. But I, I, I think it's a great uh, service. Yeah, I think it's a great service. I think he's done it broadly. I think he's probably done a good job. What do you think, Paul? Yes, and I think one of the uh, good things he's done is uh, the SBS On Demand service is is quite innovative and uh, it's like ABC iView. Um, It's got quite a lot of content on there. So uh, I think he has has brought it up to date and is very talented. I think we do know the reason that he left is that he has another job. It's just that he hasn't um, said what it it is yet. Do you know what it is? Uh, No, I don't. I'm sorry. I'm not a media reporter, so I haven't haven't been hitting the phones to work out what his next gig is. But... um, the other point I'd make for, about SBS from a Canberra perspective is that it's it's interesting that um, ABC really seems to uh, you know get up the nose of uh, Australian politicians, but uh, SBS doesn't uh, cop you know nearly the same abuse for you know being unbalanced or, or any of the rest of it. And why do you uh, th- why do you think that is? Well, I, I was just going to say I just, it's probably because the stories are so uh, international, such an international focus that. Um, uh, you know, they've spent so much of the current affairs time um, on uh, overseas stories that there's 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 uh, less uh, blanket coverage and uh, of every misstep of an Australian politician, and I think maybe that's why they like it more to get their get their mind off their own problems. Yeah, it is remarkable. They they are compared with the flack that the ABC is copying and the budget cuts and what have you. I mean, SBS has had a dream run. I mean, maybe Paul and maybe Alan's reference to the riots in Kazakhstan is really where it's at. Mm. You know, they're not really sticking the noses out of joint in Canberra as much. No, plus the relative size of the audiences. The mm. ABC is far bigger if you count radio as well, as well as the online stuff. It's ma- uh, it's massive. And so the politicians worry about that, especially the country party, the yes. national, national party, I mean. Yes. Um, they worry about uh, ABC a lot. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's interesting to see where Michael Ubid washes up next. Maybe he'll run for parliament. What do you think, Paul? In which case, you should go and get the scoop. <laughs> well, I, 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 assumed, uh, I assumed it was another media job, but maybe, maybe that's just my lack of imagination. Maybe that, maybe that is uh, going to be his next step. Head, head of Guardian. Head of the Guardian. Head of the Guardian. His job is too <laughs> surely too small a job for Michael Reed. Maybe he's going to be the head of Fairfax. <laughs> What's that, mate? Guardian on demand. That's when we'll get our. That's when we'll get our cable news. T- well, it's all. It's all making sense now. <laughs> Anyway, that's it for this week. That's it for the Fourth Estate. And I would like to praise and thank the erudition of tonight's guests, namely Alan Moyer. Thank you, Alan. My pleasure. Thank you. And I'm going to say it one more time, moyer.com.au. <laughs> Go there and get a feast of Moyer. 
I'd like to thank Remy Varga for tearing herself away from the breaking news desk of the Oz, although you're working nights this week, you told me. Yes, I am, yes. So you're off to work right now. I am, yes. Oh, well, I hope you have a quiet night. Yes, Or do you too. want a quiet night or a busy night? I actually don't know. Yeah. It seems a bit quiet today. What is, is it quiet today, Paul? Yes, I've, I've been looking into Labour pre-selections, uh, but uh, it is relatively quiet. Bill and Malcolm haven't, uh, haven't stood up and given us their thoughts on everything, which is rare. Yeah, it's a rare day, and, and you've just been listening to the voice of Paul Carp, who's been on the show today for the uh, from from Canberra. He's a Guardian political reporter. Read his stuff on the Guardian online; it's very good. In fact, they're all really great. The guests, and I want to make a special mention to my producer Evie McGuire, who, if you don't like my voice, will be in the host seat next week. And make sure you've subscribed to that Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week but in the meantime you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter and our handle is 4 Estate AU. My name is Peter Frey and thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.